welcome to Let's Grab a Cup podcast. This is where we talk about leadership, authenticity, resiliency. We provide a place to hold space for one another. I'm your host, Adam Sturgeon. So why don't you grab a cup of coffee or tea or whatever suits you at this moment. Let's dive in. All right, welcome to Let's Grab a Cup podcast. My name is Adam Sturgeon, and today I'm talking to my friend, Justin Morgan, uh, Justin is a Cal State Long Beach graduate. He uh, then went on to go to Pepperdine and graduate there with honors, and then also received a certificate of law in um, at a, in business at Cornell. Right? Um, Justin was a teacher for twelve years, and after doing uh, doing teaching and creating programming for UC Berkeley, he went on to be actually appointed to the police. Complaint Commission, which is a citizen police complaint, complaint commission. It's kind of a tongue, yeah, it's, it's a tongue, tongue twister. twister. It is. CPCC it is. in the city of Long Beach yeah. by uh, the, our mayor. Was it Mayor Garcia? It was Mayor Garcia. He was the one that nominated me. Yeah. And uh, so we're here today kind of just to uh, talk about you and uh, your your perspective from that role and the, in this uh, board of commissioners who oversee complaints from various citizens in our city. So welcome. Well, thank you. And that thank was kind you. of a weird intro, but we got through it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. If you can, if you can get through the CPCC part, you know, you're you're basically on your way to success. If you can, that's the test. That's the first test they do is they say, "Can you say the name?" You say, "Yeah, I can do that." <laughs> well, that right, was not on a police test. So there yeah, you go. yeah. Okay, there you go. There you go. Yeah. All right. So, Justin, I guess uh, we'll start with you know your history. So, uh, how did you get to Long Beach State? How did you end up in the city? How did you get to the police commission? Like, what led you to this point? Um, from an early age, like in the going towards education. Sure, uh, you know it's a long it's a long story, and I'm gonna, I want to save your listeners uh, too much too much pain in listening to my family history. My mom was a teacher; uh, she taught in Santa Monica, Malibu. She was Teacher of the Year when she retired, and my dad was an attorney. Um, and I grew up in Camarillo, California. I went to high school in Oxnard, California. And my grandmother lived in uh, Pebble Beach. So it was a pretty dynamic uh, differentiator, right? And uh, I come from, it's interesting, because my dad grew up in Madeira, California. He basically came from nothing, and he raised himself up, and he went to Vietnam, and he used uh, that that uh, experience. He was able to go get the GI Bill, send, him to, send himself to law school. Uh, my grandmother's story and my mom's story is a little different. Uh, my grandmother and my grandfather actually co-founded uh, Squaw Valley. <laughs> and, oh, really? Yeah. And uh, there's a book on loan. I'm not making this up. It's on loan to the Sierra Club, and we have a couple of copies, too. Um, and then, you know, in the background in terms of Los Angeles and kind of the greater greater history is that my uh, great-grandfather ran uh, DWP in L.A. in the 20s and 30s, and he actually attended Cornell Law. And that's why, you know, after my dad passed away, uh, in 2020, I wanted to honor both of them in some kind of meaningful way, and I got my certificate from them. And so, you know, going back, though, uh, I, I attended Cal State Long Beach because, you know, it was it seemed like kind of a fun place to go. I got in with this really great group of people, um, and I decided to become a teacher kind of midway through, a business degree from there. And I ended up working for a long time in very dynamic institutions. I started off at a French-American school, uh, and also Mandarin Chinese. I traveled to China for oh. for weeks and all of that kind of stuff. Were you teaching English in in China? No, I was. It was in Palo Alto, California, right down the street from Stanford. And uh, we were teaching. I was teaching only English. I don't speak Chinese and only speak a little bit of French. Very bad. Um, 
And I worked there for three years. It was a really cool experience. And then I went to go work for uh, UC Berkeley for a little bit and did programming. And it was an interim program director in uh, sustainability studies, if you can believe that. You know, somebody went on leave and they're like, that guy. Uh, And so, you know, that was a pretty interesting and unique experience. And then my wife and I decided to move back down to Los Angeles area because, you know, we wanted to be closer to our families. Her family grew up in Newport. Mine is in Camarillo, obviously. And so, you know, we're here. And so, you know, it, it was an interesting experience in what led me to the CPCC. You know, it's not a traditional, I think it's not a traditional trajectory in government service. Uh, I, I think it's pretty interesting because if you go back in my family's history, uh, you know, they've been here for a long, long time. And, uh, you know, like one of my great uncles co-founded Memphis with uh, President Andrew Jackson. And actually every single job in the federal government has been done, uh, with the exception of the presidency of the United States of America, by uh, my ancestors, my great-grandfathers. So it's a kind of a unique experience, and I think it's kind of cool that I was able to serve my community in some meaningful way. Yeah, that's a really rich history. I mean, talking about your, you're talking about co-founding cities or areas and then you're talking about doing all types of government work in in our history yeah and i don't want to get and and, and i don't want to get too far off the trail but my great-grandmother my mom's grandmother was a countess to the austrian hungarian empire and her father was a ferdinand and her mother was a de la seps out of france she grew up in paris i don't know what those terms are well let me explain it have you ever heard of a guy named uh, franz ferdinand yes that was her cousin (laughs) <laughs> this is this is insane. Yeah, it's, this is real. I mean, it's real. They they know who I am. No one no one's gonna believe that they're listening. That they're oh, this no, guy's. No, I know. Right. I, I mean, a couple of my friends know this, and and you know, I'm just a normal person for those people. I'm not some aristocrat. I don't have a giant yacht that I go vacation on. I have a normal house and a wife and a son. <laughs> uh, and uh, it's kind of a, a unique, rich history, especially with the context of what's going on with Russia and the Ukraine right now. I think it's kind of a a hundred years ago, you know, she came from Paris. She had lost her titles because the empire fell in eighteen nineteen or nineteen eighteen, rather, at the end of World War One, and a couple of her, her homes had been blown up during the war, wow. and so she came here uh, and married <clears throat> Paul, who ran uh, DWP. And so my grandmother grew up with the Gettys and the Huntingtons in Los Angeles. And so, you know, it, it, it's a unique experience. And my mom's best friend's father was chancellor of the UC system. So, oh, you, know, yeah. you know, my grandmother really wanted me to go into government and service. And she ended up backdooring me into a couple of prominent UCs. In, in fact, one of them I actually ended up working at, kind of ironically again. Uh, but I didn't want to do that. And my dad I uh, just wanted me to kind of choose my own path and be my own person. And I'm actually very thankful for that because obviously he is gone now. And, uh, you know, that's, it's a unique, it's a unique story, I think, you know, I, I think there, well, there's a lot to say about making in your own way. You know, I think that's important because I think that's, I had a lot of little things. Not, I mean, not a rich history like that, but where my dad knew people at different universities. And I was like, no, I want to go where I get in. You know, I want to go, where, I want to make my own way. So I think that, you know, that's how I ended up down in Cal State Long Beach as well. Well, that was the philosophy, too, with Cal State Long Beach, is that, uh, you know, looking at those other universities who were a little bit more haughty-totty and prominent, uh, you know, my, my parents, because you're still a kid, you know, you're, they're going to try to guide you at that point in time. It was also my decision 
um, they wanted me to get into a place where I fit in. And I think I really, really fit in at Cal State Long Beach. I had a lot of fun. Um, and, and ironically, I met this, you know, this wonderful group of people that have been so successful in their lives and have actually gone off and done some really amazing things. And so, you know, I, I feel like my life is better off for it, but it was, it was what I call kind of a schizophrenic and I'm not schizophrenic or anything, at least I hope not. Um, <laughs> it was kind of a schizophrenic childhood because I would go to Thanksgiving at the, the Cypress club, which is this invitation only club. And there's like presidents and all that stuff. Right. Uh, and then my high school had a daycare at it because it was down in the Oxnard Plains. And so I had these, this is really weird dichotomy in between these experiences. And I've only actually started talking about it after my grandmother and my father passed. It's my family's very small now. It's just my mom, myself and my son and my wife. And so, uh, it's a, it's a unique history and I feel and the reason I'm sharing it with your your viewers is that I feel a little bit of ownership over it. Like I have a little bit of a little bit more to contribute, you know, still. And it's the why it's the reason I'm here and I want to talk about my experiences and some of uh, my recommendations for how I think, you know, because this actually is about the police, how I think uh, things could go a lot better. And at least in our city, I can't solve everybody's problems. I'm not looking to do that, but I'm looking to mitigate problems and find solutions uh, where I feel like uh, we could find solutions. And I see that there are a lot of issues within uh, the way society and the way our local government has dealt with law enforcement lately. So we can touch yeah. on that in a little bit. Well, I mean, I think now you like you said that you are the patriarch now of your family, right? You're you're the one that's running the show, kind of for the leadership role in your in your family. Um, not by choice, but you've been put in this position and having a voice to that, I think is really important. And I appreciate having your insight here. Uh, so you did all of these things um, in the midst of kind of really what's happened in the last couple of years in the midst of COVID and the loss of your family. And now you wanted to, you heard the podcast, you, you kind of re reconnected with me and we talked yeah. about the fact that what I was doing with this platform and kind of getting this out and you expressed to me that you were on the police complaint commission, mm -hmm. and I, you know, I didn't even know. I think I, I read it on your LinkedIn or something, but yeah, yeah. I had no idea that you were doing that for a couple of years and or how that happened. So, how do you go about from being a teacher and then getting onto this uh, commissioning board? Well, I got a call from the mayor, uh, Robert Garcia. His office contacted me and uh, had recommended me for service. And so I went through their diligence process and, you know, went through the two votes at city council, uh, you know, and it was a unanimous vote, thankfully, and all of that. And so, you know, they, they looked at my resume and they looked at my background and they decided that this would be a good fit. And it's, uh, it was a good segue anyway, because I wanted to leave teaching. I just really kind of burned out. Uh, you know, I was dealing with my father's health issues at the time and my son had some health issues and I was really looking for a real change anyway. And this, this seemed to be a lot more uh, interesting in terms of perhaps a future vocation. And I wanted to understand really kind of what was going on in the city anyway outside of that. And, you know, serving on the commission over a number of years, it really opened my eyes into what officers go through on a daily basis uh, I've considered for a long time that, 
what, we, what I call, and this is just my definition, these are just my opinions, it's not anybody else's, this doesn't reflect the commission in any way, but we've got, you know, these service-based com, uh, jobs. So we've got, you know, police, fire, uh, politicians, and teachers, and those are the four groups I really want to focus on. And they're very similar dynamics in a lot of ways because you're dealing with incredibly complex problems uh, every single day. So, you know, for example, when you're a teacher, you know, you know, obviously, hopefully, with the exception of some of these shootings and stuff that go on, unfortunately, in our society, you know, your life isn't in danger. Uh, your eardrums are because the kids are loud. But um, you go in and there's, a, there's a, a, a level of expectation that you're supposed to perform this job at this very high level, but you deal with an incredible amount of uncertainty every day, right? And in talking to a lot of the police officers going through the commission and whatnot, is that they find the same thing. You don't know, and you can correct me where, where I'm wrong, it's fine. Uh, you don't know what you're going to deal with when you get into the car and you drive off, right? right? Like every day is completely unique. You don't have like, you have your schedule and what you're supposed to do and you've trained and all of that, but you don't know what you're going to be dealing with at the same time. Yeah, and you know what's funny? That's actually part of the draw to the, I remember when I was new, like I remember being in the academy, or no, sorry, right after the academy, and getting ready for the, the day, right? And I remember thinking, all I know today is that I'm going to drive into work. I have no idea what's going to happen. Yeah, normally we have a squad meeting, you know, like a briefing beforehand, but that briefing may not even happen if something has already happened in the city right. and we're going to go out. So I, only, I knew going in that I didn't know what was going to happen, and that was actually part of the draw to what I enjoyed about the job, right? So right. even with the uncertainty, there's a level of, like, I think it takes certain people to do this job because you have to be okay with that, like, Hey, we have no idea what's going to happen today, mm -hmm. uh, but that's okay because we have the tools and resources and what right. we need. You have the training. You have that confidence to be able to, right. to do your job. I mean, it's part of the reason why teachers go through, uh, because I know, I remember when you went through academy and all of that, uh, teachers go through, you know, an additional year of education and the practicum, and it's different for every state. It's different for, for really every individual now. Uh, to give them that those tools and those skill sets to be confident and to deal with extremely complex problems, because in teaching, you know, it's not all you know. People would make fun of you, like, "Oh, you're just you know, you know, coloring and you know, gluing buttons on stuff." I'm like, "Yeah, yeah, maybe on Friday." Oh, like, once that's in not a what you did. <laughs> Sometimes on Fridays, uh, but uh, you know, we would deal with uh, really kind of dark stuff. You know, you deal with there's multiple times where you had to deal with CPS. And even in high-income families, right? Like I worked with some real high-income, real smart people, uh, in toward, especially towards the end of my career. And so, you know, it's it, there was a lot of com complexity to the job uh, that, that a lot of people don't see. And so it's kind of interesting in talking to police because obviously they're very different jobs. But you have that kind of same, like what you said, you have that same level of where you don't know what to expect, but you kind of like that. Right. And, you know, especially when I was younger and wild and free and all of that, I really liked uh, the uncertainty. Right. And I liked the kind of the the sporadic nature of the job and the work itself. Um, and so, you know, I, I see parallels and I have a good friend and her husband's a fire captain. And I think it's Santa Fe Springs or somewhere like that. And he, uh, you know, he's, he says the same thing. It's, it's a difficult job and they, they see a lot of different dynamics. You know, first responders just see a lot. You yeah. see a lot, a lot. And, you know, when I was on the commission... Well, before we... I was actually going to have you... Well, I was curious because I know some people might not know. So what is the Citizen Police Complaint Commission? What is it? 
So you describe it from your point of view? Sure. It is a an oversight commission, and they, they draw from the different districts of Long Beach. So we had 11 commissioners, um, and it's their rotating seats and all of that stuff. And basically, it is if, if you know, if something happens, somebody can, can complain, right? Like they can right. sign a form, and it goes to our commission. And it's an interesting process really learning about. It took me a couple of months, actually, to really learn the ins and outs of how the process actually worked. And actually, as the way it's, it's written, it's a pretty good process. It's very tedious. It's very time-consuming. Um, but basically what happens is, is if an individual feels like they want to complain for some reason or another, they'll fill out a form, the CPCC, Executive uh, Director, and the investigators will contact the individual. They'll go through the complaint. They'll start in. They'll start their own parallel investigation. This is something like because I was in the papers a couple times. Uh, the local papers hear about it, um, and and they'll go through it and they'll do their due diligence. They'll pull cams. They'll they'll pull some of this the CCTV footage. You have your own investigators. We have our own investigators. Okay. okay? And when I first started, it was it was a pretty evolutionary process because I was on the commission from 2019 to 2021, served my full term. And, uh, you know, obviously that was during the George Floyd moment. And so that was a big turning point for us in terms of uh, some of the practices and, and, and some of the information that we got. And so when I started on the commission, it was... We would have, you know, we would be provided by the police department with some of the paperwork and whatnot. What we didn't have was officer statements. Um, so we had to go basically off eyewitness accounts, uh, the complainants, and then some of the police documents. Like if there was a traffic violation, for example, we'd okay. have all the traffic tickets. Not the police report? We'd have police reports, yeah. Okay. Yeah. And they typically were not redacted very much. Uh, and then the other part of the process when we were going through it is that the... Uh, the IA commander would sit in on on all of the meetings, or at least a representative. And they were not there to influence decisions. They were extremely, I just want to point this out, they were extremely professional. They were there to direct legal questions, right? Can an officer do X? Are they allowed to do Y? Why did they do Z kind of thing, right? right? And they never, ever, ever, at any point in time, and I sat in on all the meetings but one, they never... Uh, influenced our decisions. They're extremely knowledgeable. They're extremely uh, polite. And so, you know, it was actually as a board, as a commission, because I've been on several boards now. I've been the chair of uh, my son's uh, school board in, in Long Beach. Uh, you know, it was the most professional group of people that I've been with. So I just want to reiterate. The board that. members. The commissioners. In the, the, the process in general. It was very professional, right? There was not a lot of games being played, at least from my point of view. Uh, because because the point of view, like from the police point of view, is it's kind of scary. Like you have this, and it sounds weird to think it's scary, but we already have internal affairs who investigates police Correct. misconduct. Correct. And anyone can make a complaint. You can make a complaint to a supervisor in the field, or you can go online to make a complaint, or you can make a complaint at the front desk. These are three ways that they can make a complaint to the police department. Correct. Not going to the CPCC, and so we already have that. Avenue, we kind of understand the avenue. We we kind of, and I say kind of, understand the avenue, meaning a lot of people who haven't gone through it or who maybe have seen some parts of the investigation still are nervous going through that side of it. So now you have this other board, and we it's this mindset. And I say we, but I should speak for myself. It's this idea that um, we believe that this 
the civilian or citizen board uh, doesn't know policing and has this other, basically this opinion where they're just going to blatantly say the police were wrong. Mm-hmm. That's that's kind of like the idea. So that when you're saying it's very fair and very um, like professional going through these meetings, I would the mindset is that oh they're just telling saying every police officer did something wrong. You that's that's the mindset, and, and that makes a lot of sense to me because if you were let's juxtapose this for a second, if you were in the military and you had you know you you were talking about the rules of engagement, which are very different in the military. Right. My dad was in the military. They comes from a long line of people that you know all the way down to the Green Mountain Boys who were in the American Revolution. Uh, he's buried in, at Fort Ord, in fact. Uh, and so you, you talk about rules of engagement, going back to this. And if you had uh, a civilian commission overseeing the rules of engagement from soldiers who have been trained in the rules of engagement and officers or whatnot, it is a scary thing. And I think, uh, and I can definitely understand people's anxieties. And we did have, when I say it was extremely professional, it, it's with an asterisk. Because we did have an individual commissioner who, during uh, the Black Lives Matter movement, stand on a car and talk about how the CPCC was a farce and all of this stuff. Yeah, I remember and, seeing the video. Yeah, that was fun. Um, and uh, it made me kind of feel uh, pretty terrible about what was going on because I've always tried to be really impartial and fair. The whole point of being on the commission is that you're a civilian, you're getting the video feed, you're getting a ton of information, and you're able to make an independent recommendation, right? These are uh, reviewed by the chief of police and the city manager. Um, And so if there's a sustained allegation, they look at it, they look at it from the semantics and the legal terms. Uh, The city manager's office uh, attorneys sit in on there. Um, And so, you know, they're there to uh, clarify any kind of legal questions. But there was an individual on the commission that was clearly uh, very anti-police. And to me, that's an abdication of the right of the of the responsibilities of being a commissioner. Right. Because if you're already predisposed to dislike police officers, like you have no business being on a police oversight commission. Right. Because we don't receive any formal training. Right. Like the you know this was pre-COVID, and we did a training over at uh, the Long Beach uh, facility over you know over in uh, the Lakewood Town Center. Okay, and you know we we talked about handcuffing, which is always a big a lot of complaints about handcuffing, right? Because when you get arrested, it hurts to put on handcuffs, so it just does. Yeah, we do this in the academy to, our, to each other over and over again. Yeah, and because if you if you leave the handcuffs too loose, well then somebody can get out. And so it's, it's not a pleasant experience, and so we get a lot of complaints. So, for example, we'd all be handcuffed, and we'd experience that. Went through a training simulation. We had the assistant chief of police talk to us. Uh, we had some of the undercover guys even come and talk to us about some of the stuff that they do. Um, and, and the whole purpose was, was to kind of form a link in between uh, the professionalism of the department and for us as civilians to understand what you guys really go through on a day-to-day basis. And so, you know, I always tried to be as fair as possible with, with every single case. I looked at it because I was a teacher. You know, if, if I was a teacher and I, <laughs> it, eight hours of my teaching day was videotaped, 
right? And a student or a parent complained because ah, they do, right? You know, they absolutely do, and it hurts. Uh, and then if it went to a commission of people that I've never met who have never don't, taught, yeah, they don't do teaching, <laughs> right? <laughs> it would feel pretty pretty rough. Um, so there are a lot of layers to it. So it's not just this wild and crazy board of people making kind of what I call, uh, you know, career, I, I want to say this, career life and death decisions. They're, um, they're trying to really uphold uh, our responsibilities as independent commissioners to look at the law, to look at the uh, actions taken, and all of that. So you're talking about that there, besides that one person, everybody else is pretty professional during your tenure? Yes, and I, there, that was that was the in the in honestly internally and and obviously it's there's a legal issue so I can't talk too much about right. it because these are all closed cases um, and you know it, there was there was a belligerency during the meetings that I've actually never seen before as an individual. Uh, luckily, the seat was at large and that that individual was not renewed for a new term after that. It was it was kind of a short term, uh, and and they moved on. Um, and after that, actually a lot of really what I call positive changes happened. So one of the big things that happened when I was on the commission, it was started in 1990 by, uh, he wasn't a representative then, but, uh, Alan Lowenthal, who's our current representative and he's retiring and Garcia's running for his seat. Um, he, you know, he was one of the founders of the commission and so it's been around for a while. It's gone through a lot of different reviews. There's been, uh, there's been controversies here and there, of course. Right. Right. Um, and so what happened was uh, right after the, the George Floyd riots um, is that the, the PBA, for the first time, they, they started giving us the officer statements about what happened. PBA? So, yeah. What's yeah. PBA? Uh, sorry, it's the Police Association. Oh, okay. Yeah. POA, um, the POA. POA, sorry. sorry. Oh, I'm, just, I'm like, I was curious what the yeah, PBA the, is. The acronym, so I know. POA, yeah. Yeah, I apologize. No worries. You know, all of education is acronyms, so <laughs> I just screw that up too. Um, and so, you know, they, they opened the books, and so what we were able to see... When you say officer statements, can you clarify what that means? Like in internal affairs officer statements or statements to specific events, or how do, what do you mean by... So it was, it, my understanding, it was the statements they made to internal affairs. Okay, so whatever, then they got interviewed at Internal Affairs. Those statements were now provided to the CPCC if a separate complaint was made? No, it's actually, that's not true, sorry. It was it was statements about the, there would be a separate write-up about the incident. So if there was a, for example, if there was a traffic incident and you were involved, they would, uh, before what we were provided with was uh, our investigation. We were in, uh, provided with the statements from the complainant. We were provided with uh, any eyewitness accounts. And um, then if there was any accompanying video, we were provided with that as well. Uh, if there wasn't accompanying video, they always tried to find something visual so they, they could pull see the CCTV footage and all of that. Uh, and then after uh, the Floyd stuff, um, we started getting statements from the officers and I'm not sure how those were ascertained to be quite okay. honest. So you're not, so not sure, but there's so some type sure of, some they, type of statement was provided. Yeah. And they were in detail. They were good. You know, they, they provided a much more clear picture um, because, you know, I actually got quoted unfortunately in the paper for saying it's like walking in the dark. That was my quote because I, I felt like we were given one half of the pie, but we weren't hearing from the officers, which was really important, right? right? Because if you are an individual and you're doing something, 
uh, as dangerous as police work, as important as police work, you should be able to provide your statement, right? Like that's really important, I think. Um, it, without without the danger of you know perjuring yourself or somehow being brought up for something. Um, when we got those statements, it, it really opened up uh, our ability to to make much more uh, sound judgments on the cases. Um, Do you feel like the so before they were seeing statements, was there a percentage shift? So like for example, was it? And I'm making these numbers up. Sure. So let's let's say fifty fifty. Uh, we believe we are upholding the citizen complaint or was it like 60, 40 and then it switched? Was there any switch there or was it exactly the same percentage wise you believe? Um, I, I if you can like answer, I don't know what you can answer. It's, so. it's hard. It's hard to quantify that. Right. Because I wasn't sitting right. there. Uh, and just to give your listeners an understanding is it was a one time a month meeting and they, they would go long. Like sometimes they would go to three o'clock in the morning. Long. Oh wow. Yeah. Really long. Um, and then obviously we're doing zoom meetings during the whole pandemic and all of that stuff too. And, it really wasn't affected because we were still able to stream the videos and all of that. Uh, but in terms of quantifying what I saw, I didn't see a massive difference. I just felt like when we were voting, we were able to vote with a lot more confidence, okay. right? But I do want to provide your listeners because I really did try to, before I came on, I really, and I've thought about this for a long time because I've talked to him, you know, I talked to my dad when he was alive about it, not about the specifics of the cases, just about kind of the general observations is that in my observation, this is not quantifiable. In my two years, getting about 15, 20 cases, if not more, per session. So there's a lot of cases over two oh, years. Wow. Yeah, yeah, um, I saw 85 to 90% of the cases that I saw, officers were absolutely 100% upholding their standards to the point where I was super impressed, actually, with the way officers conducted themselves. Um, and I saw, uh, I saw a level of uh, kind of violence and 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 I don't want to hyperbolize too much savagery increase on the streets. And I don't know if you saw that as well. It seemed to be it seemed to switch from uh, telling in the last couple of years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and especially well, the statistics I, are out. I mean, the violence has, uh, has increased, but towards officers, I'm yeah, thinking towards officers. Absolutely. There was a massive increase in belligerency of individuals who were on video or whatever the complainants and whatever you want to towards the officer, right? And even with that, the the statistic never changed. And I think in any profession, I don't care what you're doing, law, medicine, politics, maybe not politics, it's probably way lower. Um, <laughs> but, you know, any profession you're, you're doing, if you have 5 to 10% of your workforce who's maybe not 100% on board, and I want to talk about that, I don't want to throw anybody under the bus here, not 100% maybe doing, doing what they should or, or maybe not upholding the standard as much as they should, 90% is super impressive, especially given the constraints that you're putting under. Um, you know, the, you know the, at the core of what police work, at least in my, my opinion and what I've seen, it, is, it goes back to the, to the message and to the motto to protect and serve. And so when I saw those individual officers and multiple officers oftentimes on videos, you know, they were absolutely upholding that standard to protect and serve. And, um, you know, it, 
I never had a strong opinion one way or the other, right? Which is why I think I'm an independent by nature. Prior to going to, into the board. Correct, right. correct. I never posted on stuff. I never, you know, it's just... And actually, all of the... Uh, all of the encounters that I had with Long Beach PD over the years, all the way from 1999 to now, has been positive, right? Like I and I understand like the the way I conduct myself when an officer is around. I'm very polite. I, I listen. Um, you know, I'm, I'm not belligerent or at all. I'm not aggressive towards them. But uh, you know, I I felt that the officers of Long Beach were really upholding a very high standard of professionalism. And that's really, truly what I saw. We're not allowed to go out and talk about that. I'm not on the commission anymore. I can't be canceled. <laughs> you, <know? laughs> you can't be fired. <laughs> well, you can try to fire me. I work for myself. So you're going you're gonna to call. Hilarious. You're going to call my board of directors and hear a guy that sounds exactly like me. <laughs> um, but, you know, when I saw that, within like the 5 to 10% we were talking about, um, one of the things that, that, I, that I saw was, and it goes back to feeling burned out as a teacher towards the end of my career, is that officers were being asked to do way too much with way too little. And no matter who you are, you're a human being, right? Like we're all human beings. No matter who you are, at some point in time, you know, there's an executive functioning in our brain that governs our ability to essentially make really good decisions. And that gets used up and it can come back uh, there was a, a, a Princeton psychologist who talked about it, and I remember reading this article, and he, he sat there sitting in Princeton, New Jersey, and he's like, why do people on Friday night go out and have three margaritas and a big old bag of chips or something like that? Like, what? You know, they're not doing that on Monday night. They're not doing that on Tuesday night. Like, what is it about? And this is, you know, the traditional nine-to-five crowd, right. Monday through Friday. What is it about that time that they just go for it? And he found that it was basically that your executive functioning part of your brain kind of started to dip, right? And so, you know, when I looked at the officers, translating this back into what we're talking about, uh, what they're dealing with, they're dealing with, just like we talked about at the beginning, all of these different dynamics. And when you're asking people to risk their lives, to go out in extremely dangerous situations time and time again, every night, you know, no matter who you are, eventually you're going to make a mistake. Um, and so, you know, my recommendations were always, we need more officers, we need more support systems. And I don't mean sending the social workers out to, to the domestic problems, because <laughs> you know that those are some of the most dangerous situations yeah, you absolutely, face, yeah. right? You don't know if you go to a domestic house call, you know, you don't know if it's going to be a knife fight. You don't know what's going to happen. Which is crazy. I mean, it's insane to think that that's where we were talking about or people are still talking about this idea of we're going to have people who are unarmed and untrained to go out and deal with people who are prone to violence at that time, you know, in these hostile situations. So anyway, and, and that's social, that's, And I don't want to throw the social workers under the bus. They're, they do great work, but they're they're – they're they're not trained people to deal with the situation if it goes south, which it often does right. in a domestic abuse situation. Those are the or most dangerous situations that officers deal with: domestic violence and then random traffic stops are the two highest you know violent situations that officers get themselves in. Right, and so um, when we were at the training academy, uh, the assistant police chief, and this was in October of 2019, he told us that they were 200 officers short of their goal. Right, like they wanted 200 more officers. 
And, you know, my heart dropped over the pandemic because after everything that happened uh, in, I think it was May 31st, 2020, when downtown Long Beach really kind of got smashed up, uh, you know, I just saw, I saw kind of a, a demoralized force for a while because, you know, you guys were being told that you were heroes at the beginning of the pandemic and then it, it switched on to this message of let's defund the police, let's do all of this stuff. And I just never agreed with that. I was like, this is, this is not a good idea. From a historical perspective, name one society that's been successful that's removed their police force. You can't do it. It doesn't work. Um, there are individuals out there that are simply very dangerous humans, Right. And you, I'm sure, have dealt with that as in your career. You've had a long career at this yeah. point in time. Um, and we need a police force that feels supported by their community, that feels validated in what they do. Not, I don't think, you know, I, I don't like hero worship or any of that stuff, but feels validated and respected for what they do. You know, and I've seen, you know, we talk about the service careers, even like politicians at a very small local level, people that really aren't in it for the money or the, the super PACs or any of that nonsense. Uh, you know, you just see this kind of demoralized force across the board. I think it's something that's really affected the quality of life in Los Angeles County. Uh, you know, I have the ability to truthfully really live anywhere I want. And I chose to move to Long Beach with my family. And I wanted my son to grow up in a dynamic neighborhood and good food and a lot of different cultures and, you know, like a cool city next to a beach. And I've seen the quality of life drop. And I've seen that, honestly, I really do believe because of the way uh, law enforcement has been treated uh, from the higher political class, uh, you know, all the way down. And, and I understand, too, that, you know, people may disagree with me on this stuff, um, and, and again, nobody's perfect because we did see incidences of, of uh, officers doing things that they absolutely shouldn't do. But it was very, very, very few, right? right. Like this was not like every other case. There was not a 50-50 vote. And so even with, okay, so going back to the board for a second. So you're, so with the commissioners on the board, um, regardless of how, what their true beliefs were, there are political affiliations where everybody's voting and you're saying pretty knowledgeable with the cases and they're voting with like, Hey, 90%, 95% of the time saying officers did what we believe what they should have been doing. Right. And, and some of the, uh, some of the sustained allegations, right. When we talk about it was sustained and exonerated and whatnot. And some of the sustained allegations really stemmed from uh, an issue of semantics. Sometimes the way it was written like the way the complaint was written and the, and, and we had to even talk to legal about that, like making sure. Do you, I don't know if you can think of something that you can I say or anything can't at all. I really get specific because these are, again, these are legal matters, but it would be, if I could just do something off the top of my head, it would literally be, you know, officer X engaged with the individual in question uh, in Y way. And it just was kind of just didn't work that way. Um, and so there was a little bit of a semantical issue in terms of the the way the statements were written, uh, too. And so, you know, again, you can see the statistics. You can go there. You can see the there's there are sustained allegations. But in every case, you just because I had maybe 15 cases in, in a month, um, each case, 
there might be three, four, five, six different allegations okay. within that case, right? So we're dealing with a, a lot of different variety here as well. I'm curious, how many allegations and how many of these allegations do you think uh, were sustained in regards to professionalism? Just the, like the general term professionalism, were, were there any? Um, I can't, I honestly can't quantify that. Because it's were there were, were there any that were can you even say were there any professionalism cases? Yes, yes, there were like would people complain not professional, not being professional? Y- yes, that's and, correct. And have, were any of those sustained cases? Uh, basically, yes. Okay, and I know this is a weird way to ask this, but if you can't answer it, it is what it is. Um, were were most of those sustained cases? No. Okay. The reason why I'm asking is because I'm I'm obviously we deal with our our we're not perfect either right people right. aren't perfect I wasn't perfect as a teacher I right. made mistakes right and people are so, going to have different levels and this is kind of why I even started the podcast because I think that like I talk about this whole idea of like this, you know we all talk about shit rolls downhill right mm-hmm. if I treat someone terribly at work my coworker or someone they're going to go out and treat potentially treat the community terribly because now they're feeling like shit and they're going to go out in Correct. society and now treat the person maybe be short short fused or whatever. Um, so that's why this idea of taking care of each other is why where we're coming from. So you have an officer who may, maybe have, maybe they're short with somebody or maybe they don't treat someone exactly the way that that person feels like they should have been treated and their a professionalism complaint comes up. It may be different. Like, well, the officer said, I didn't say anything wrong. I said I, it was factual based. He just didn't like the way I said it or whatever it is. And I'm just curious. That's why I was curious if it was like a professionalism case. Yeah, and, and then occasionally to that too, there occasionally, uh, you know, there, there were just, it was just a very, very small handful. Like an officer would kind of misquote the law. And I don't think it was done through intention. It was just kind of a, because there's so, it's such a broad scope, right? Uh, you know, you might have a younger officer or something kind of misquote something. And somebody said, oh, that's not right. And they would complain about that. Um, and, and these, those weren't particularly serious or anything like that. Yeah. I was just, that's all I was curious. And then the whole point is like anyone listening, um, the idea of trying to maintain that professional, because that's probably going to combat most complaints anyway, just being professional in in, in, the best way you can. Obviously there's tactile things where you can have to be more direct and command presence is going to take precedent. But if the most professional you can be in any situation, you're going to probably mitigate most complaints. I would assume. That's my. That's the way I take it. Yes, I, I don't disagree with that. I don't disagree with that. And you know, by and large, and, and by the way, we did not, as a commission, uh, we did not uh, vote in unison or anything like that. You know, some of these boards, what I or what I call rubber stamp, where everybody just goes, "Oh yeah, let's do that," right? So there how was, did it? How did it work? There was a lot of uh, there was a lot of internal debate, and there was a lot of questions, and you know we would go split decisions on some things, really, a lot of things. Um, how does that get solved? Well, it's it's an uneven number, so you know typically uh, typically you might have seven to six or four to five or however many people are in attendance, that kind of thing. So there's there's no such thing as a tie. All right. So, so. was there was there ever a time where there was exactly let's say eight or ten people on the on the board at a time mm-hmm. or in the meeting? Was there a tiebreaker vote or how does that work? So what would happen in a case like that would be because there were um, is that we would then re evaluate the case we would almost like restart over and we would reread it we might look at some other videos and then after that second process there would be a change there would be often a change and it wouldn't be a significant change it might just be one or two people would change their vote after okay um 
you know, I think in terms of the problems, uh, we were given so many cases, especially during the pandemic time, that, you know, our level, we talked about executive functioning, right, our ability to make good decisions, you know, that that would be compromised uh, if you're deciding cases. You know, we started at 530 uh, in the evening. If you're at 230 at night, yeah, those those cases are, are not going to be, uh, you know, for whatever reason, they're not going to be uh, debated at the same level of the cases at the beginning of the night. It's interesting. Did you ever have to push cases to another date saying like, hey, yes. we can't yes. we can't make this is too complicated. We have to push this off. We're too yes. tired. Yes, but we were often up, so it was kind of a double-edged sword because we did that a couple times and it was brutal. And the reason why we couldn't just push it to next month is that oftentimes we were under the statute of limitations. We were one year, excuse me. And um, and so we we weren't able to punt a case. One of the things that we did do a lot, though, was what we call reinvestigate. And so meaning that if we didn't feel like we had enough information to make a good decision... We were able to, they, the investigators were able to ascertain more information and come back to us and revisit the case in the next session. You didn't have another year or? No, no, it doesn't. Session? And that was only with cases that were, you know, might have a month or two left. Okay, so not timed out. We were not timed out. Um, and some of the cases to, uh, you know, and, and they actually did a good, the executive director did a good job in, in terms of the cases towards the end of, of the night tended to be people that they were unable, like they'd make the initial complaint and they would vanish, right? They weren't ever able to find the complainant again. Right. They weren't able to follow up. Uh, and so those were, you know, we, we saw a fair number of those towards the end. Uh, that we call NFA or no, no further action, okay. meaning that we just we weren't going to hold the officers accountable for somebody that made a complaint and, and then just vanishes, yeah. right? Like you can't do that. And so, you know, I I, I really hoped and, and tried to uphold the the fairness doctrine and everything that we were doing because I recognize what police officers go through. Uh, obviously, I'm not a police officer and I don't have any training, but I wanted to. Uh, recognize them as individuals and as professionals uh, who are doing a job, who are protecting and serving our community, and to try to give uh, the, the maximum amount of attention towards every individual complaint. I mean, as a teacher, you know, if somebody complains against you, it's a very painful process, right? You go to your principal's office and you have to explain yourself or whatever. And I can only imagine that officers go through something far worse with internal affairs and then oh, yeah, having the, the this stuff, yeah, the stress and, and having this stuff exposed and then having, uh, you know, 10, 11 individuals looking at this and then, you know, the city's running a parallel investigation. So, so when you went on the, the commission, uh, you said you talked about earlier, you were in like independent, you didn't, you didn't. I say independent, like like politically independent. You didn't have like affiliation towards like leaning one way or the other. I've been read. Yeah, I'm, I'm. Yeah, exactly. So then, how did you? When did you find yourself? Because obviously, you're been, you've been really pro at this point. Like talking about it, like you're really been behind police officers and like what we go through and the challenges that we face. Was there some switch that happened during this time that you were a commissioner that made you feel that way? Or you still felt pretty unbiased, like you didn't have any issues? Absolutely. I was, I really tried to be unbiased, you know, and I would vote how I felt. And I, I looked at it as people doing a job, right? Like everybody's doing a job. And so you're trying to make the very best decision possible. And if somebody totally screwed up in their job, there are a couple incidences where we're, 
people went too far, you know, and I would vote my conscience. But, uh, and, and again, I never, I never was like pro one way or the other. I just found in, in, you know, it, because you have the media saying one thing, I found through my own observations, a very observational person, you know, um, through my own observation is that I found officers were really upholding, you know, their duties in a, in a, you know, we made a lot of accommodations too. It's not something that people talk about, but, uh, you know, you can make an, you can make a recommendation to the department, you can make a recommendation to the city, but you can also make an accommodation to, to our officers they really went above and beyond the call of duty. Oh, really? Yes. And so, In you know. Com- like commendation? Like accommodation, right. yeah. Oh, okay, accommodation. Yeah. I'm not saying it correctly. But, you know, and I don't know where those went. I don't know if they, like, they got McDonald's coupons or something <laughs> or, like, a cool certificate. Well, ho- like, I mean, hopefully the guys got them. If you guys were writing commendations, hopefully they were getting them, yeah. Yeah, I mean, because there was a, a number of officers that uh, dealt with incredibly complex and difficult situations in, in the most professional manner possible. Right. Like you would come off watching a video and the videos, by the way, were and I know it's it probably makes a lot of people nervous to to hear this, your listeners, uh, because we were provided with the videos and we were provided with the body cam stuff, um, at least the pertinent body cam stuff. The videos were uh, a game changer for us because it, it really showed us in a very full detail uh, exactly what was being done, exactly what was being said. And, you know, oftentimes, like, often way more than you would think, the videos really skewed to the officer's side, right? Yeah. Like, that they were doing the right thing. Whereas when we started, it was just kind of a he said, she said thing, and we didn't even hear from the officers. And so the process started getting at least a lot more transparent. That's all I've that's yeah. ever I've talked about, right? Is I want it to be fair and I wanted it to be transparent. Is that everybody needed a fair shake in yeah. what they were doing. That was really important. I come from a long legal family and it's really important to treat people fairly, especially people that are putting themselves in danger. What's right? interesting, you talk about transparency and then the body cameras. I was I, I mean, I never wanted to wear a body camera and obviously we wear them every day. Yeah. And, um, but I've seen so much more positives come out of the actual video than any negative. Like someone can complain left and right. I've taken numerous complaints and taking complaints. You can watch the body camera and it shows exactly what happened. It debunks the whole complaint because just because someone gets a ticket or gets arrested doesn't mean that they have a valid complaint. And if obviously people know this that are listening to this, but like running your body camera has saved more people than if they've not had a camera rolling. Yeah, and I'm sure it makes a lot of people nervous, right? Because, uh, you know, you could make mistakes or say something wrong and you're on camera. Great, you know, everybody gets to see it. But um, what it did was it provided veracity to what the officers were doing. And more times than not, you know, the complainant statements would just be like, "This this is a complete fallacy. Like, this is a fantasy, yeah. you know, compared to what I'm seeing on video. And again, we would try to find, mul- it wouldn't just be one officer, it'd be all the, the officers. If it was, you know, a group of people responding to a situation, we would pull as many cams as we possibly could, right? Yeah. Um, and, and again, that for us was a game changer in a positive way. And I think it really benefited uh, our ability to uh, make sound judgments, um, you know, there, there's been a lot of uh, criticism about whether or not you should have a civilian board overseeing the police and 
kind of revisiting that. And, you know, one of the recommendations I made when I left is I said, you know, the commission in its, in its current form, it needs to do, if we're going to do that, you know, we need to be provided with a lot more time, more training, and it needs to be, uh, you know, as a commissioner, right? Because we didn't have a lot of time and we didn't have a lot of training is that we need to be provided with, more training and more understanding of what officers go through in order to uh, have the full picture. Would you suggest it be like academy training or training, or do you want, I know you said you went on a ride along. You told me um, before we yeah, started. Yeah, that was a requirement. Right? That you went on a ride along. Um, was it one ride along you had to go just on? Just one, just one per term. Yeah. So would you, would you, should be more ride alongs? What would you suggest to be more training? Um, well, first of all, I'd suggest more time. Right. More time to evaluate the cases. More time to evaluate the cases. I would like more time. I would like, you know, and I know that that it has to be closed. This is confidential. These are legal matters. To look at the video, to be able to really dissect the cases, to be able to look at that. Because we would get the cases uh, about a week before we had. So it wasn't like we were reading it for the first time. He was able to go through it and kind of tear it apart. But what you read on paper and then when you see the video, you know, it really, which often, sorry, it would, it would oftentimes change the narrative, right? It would change the the whole right. dynamic of the case. But you're like right there. You're making split decisions, like boom, 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 and and everybody else is in the room. And so giving giving us an opportunity, and we kind of explored that a little bit. Like you can come in and you can review the videos, and I was all for that. I was like, I want the the, the most information so I can make the best possible decision. You know, here. I don't want to make split decisions, and I don't want this to become some sort of political game where if you're a liberal or you're a conservative, you're on one side and you're a liberal on another side or whatever. You know, I just wanted the most information possible because these are people's lives. These are people's careers, right? Like, this isn't, like, fun and games. This right. is this is serious, serious stuff. Um, and I just wanted to make sure that we were given maximum opportunity to practice uh, our very best judgment, right? Like... It, almost like a mini lawyer, like a lawyer goes through all their due diligence and they spend, you know, forever preparing for a case, right? And and it's oftentimes just as important because our recommendations can really negatively or positively affect uh, an officer's ability to do their job, their morale, their general feeling of how they're doing and all of that, right? Yeah, absolutely. Do you think that you had more, based on your background and just like what you've got, what your schooling and education, do you think that you had just a better handle, grasp on the idea of the, like the whole, you know, bipartisanship of the situation? Yes. And uh, growing up and, you know, I grew up uh, uh, hanging bulletin boards in mom's room. And then when I was older, I worked on cases with dad. He was a business lawyer, but, you know, I worked for him and all of his, his, law, his lawyer friends in town and uh, I would do a ton of work for them. And so I had this kind of informal legal training. And I, by no means am I a lawyer. I'm not trying right. to say I've gone through my three years and passed the bar or anything like that. But I come from a very legal family, right? Like even 100 years ago, there was somebody on Supreme Court. Um, so, you know, you're talking about, I, I just always wanted to make sure that I was being fair and understanding towards uh, towards the individuals. And, you know, if I was on the, the fire department commission complaints, which I don't think is a thing. I don't think they have one. <laughs> yeah, people don't complain about that yeah, often. It goes in a trash bag or you something. Know, exactly. <laughs> goes in the burn bag. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, if I was going through that, uh, that process is I would want to learn as much as I could about the due process and what firefighters go through. And I'd want to talk to them 
And I think with the commissioners having a little bit more exposure to uh, the processes, like one of the commissioners sat in on dispatch, for example, on the 911 dispatch, and they did that by by choice, Um, you know, and that was in in the the pandemic was a very different dynamic. And obviously with the riots and stuff, it changed a lot of things. But I would have liked more opportunity to engage with the department, right, and have them understand that, you know, we're not some wild and crazy board. And again, you know, that individual commissioner that came out and said we're a farce and everybody's horrible and all this stuff, it it really, it took a long time for, I think, our body to kind of recover from that because the media picked up on that and thought that somehow we're all on the take or some, you know, just wild fantasies, yeah. right? Um, and, and in my experience, you know, with... Uh, you know, I, I don't want to mention any names. We had a lieutenant sit in on it, and he was extremely professional. Uh, the IA commanders, there were two of them. You know, one of them was retiring, and the other one took over. They were both extremely professional. These were knowledgeable people who just knew the law and knew the jobs, and knew the rights and responsibilities of officers backwards and forwards, and never ever tried to influence our decisions. Right? Yeah. They were there to provide context and to provide understanding. And, you know, I, I came off really, truly, because, again, I'm a free person. I was just about to ask you, like, you're talking about, oh, you're talking about, you came off the board, or you're talking about came off, how you came off? And, and no, no, no. When I, when I came off the, the commission, and I'm able to speak very freely about this, is, is again, I wanted to reiterate, like, I, I was just so impressed by the just overall general professionalism of the department. Um, you know, I, I, in a lot of ways, and we're going to talk about it in a second, some of my other stuff here. You know, in a lot of ways, you guys are out fighting a war. And, uh, you know, after 2019, you know, other than what's what's going on in the Ukraine and in the world, and hopefully, you know, it doesn't doesn't get bigger, but you never know. uh, You're seeing more violence than, you know, soldiers stationed in Iraq and Afghanistan on a day-to-day basis. You're seeing more... uh, just anti uh, behavior towards the profession on a day to day basis. Um, so, you know, again, in the face of that, in light of everything that happened, again, I came off very, very impressed by the, uh, the professionalism of the officers of the city. And it really made me sad to uh, see the department and see them go through this, this defunding movement and tell them that they were terrible and to want to take away everything. And, and again, I'm not saying it's perfect. There's no such thing as perfect. People are not perfect. Uh, But, you know, I just felt that that was completely the wrong message based on what I had seen. And they were just political talking points for all these other people to score points. And I just didn't think it's fair. It's part of the reason why I'm here. Yeah, so now I was going to ask you. So you only did two years, which is one. Two years is one. Two years is term. one term, correct? Okay, so it seemed to me that we, we meaning the police officers, would want you or someone like you on the board. I'm not saying that there other people on the board aren't and similar to you, being bipartisan, being fair, and listening to all sides. But why did you decide to leave? Uh, for a couple of different reasons. Um, you know, number one, we weren't, my wife and I weren't sure we were going to stay in the city based on what I was seeing, based on the level uh, increase in crime. We were talking about, I don't care what the city releases, we're talking about an increase of 300 to 500% in crime in almost every single 
uh, category. We're talking about shootings and rapes and all sorts of stuff. Uh, another thing, too, is, is that the district attorney of Los Angeles started trying to interfere in some of the processes. And I did not want to be part of a commission that was actively going out and targeting officers or somehow unsealing records or any of this stuff. So how do you say interfere? So you, how does the district attorney, what are the rules? What are the rules or how were the rules when you left? And then what was the district attorney trying to do to interfere? Well, this is neither here nor there. It's just something that I heard that he was trying to go in and unseal some of the police uh, records to start kind of quantifying if you had certain, you know, X number of complaints against this officer and whatnot, kind of start scorekeeping a little bit, right? And uh, you guys are putting up with enough. Uh, and also the, the individual in question, George Gascon, uh, you know, I, I vehemently strongly disagree with his policies on crime. If I was a teacher, and I, in which I was, and I had a set of rules for my class, and I allowed, I don't know, students to start breaking some of my rules, do you know what would happen every single time? Within a week, all the kids would start breaking the rules. And so when we see this, uh, this individual stop prosecuting for you know, very serious crimes, right? Pretty much everything outside of capital offenses. Right. Uh, you know, and then the police are underfunded and they're, they're really demonized. It, it was an environment that I didn't feel comfortable being a part of. And that's the truth. And I didn't feel like I was powerful enough to go up against these forces. Okay, so he's asking for unseal, to unseal records. Is he interfering? How else is he interfering with the board? I, you know, I, can't, you know? I can't speak to anything else. That's all I, I heard, okay. and that was hearsay. All right. Right? Like I want your, your, your listeners to understand that. This is hearsay, and that's kind of what I heard through the grapevine. And this is while you're on the board? This, is, well, this, was, um, this was in April of, April of 2021, yeah. Okay, and then you're term ended when? Oh, I didn't terminate. I wasn't. Oh, I, no, it ended. No, it <laughs> ended. Your term ended. No, I got I a little plaque. When, <laughs> when your term was concluded. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it was uh, June 21. June okay. 21. So. All right, so you decided, hey, this is not, I'm, I, you know, I'm kind of done with the way that this is being handled. I don't want it to go that way. Um, do you think, I don't know, this is basically your opinion at this point because I don't even know if of you course, know. Of course, this is hearsay. Yeah. yeah, but do you think that um, the board is able to prevent uh, the district attorney from doing those things? No. In any way? Not particularly. I just didn't want to be part of a system that uh, was was going to start, you know, possibly uh, really going after and antagonizing officers. And I again, again, when I left, I, I don't pay attention. I don't listen to the meetings anymore. I don't really know what's going on right now. Uh, they did go through this big process of uh, reaching out to the community and to see. And that's that's I was the community chair. Was voted for the community uh, outreach program, and I had been criticized in the media for that because. You know, they're like, well, the community already knows what we want. I'm like, I don't know. I don't know what the community wants from the CPCC. Um, and so I just kind of felt, to, to, to maybe poorly summarize it, I felt like the whole process was tainted. And, you know, I, I didn't want to be part of, of something that was tainted like that. Uh, you know, I have, other, I have other responsibilities in my life. As I said, you know, I've, my life changed dramatically after my father passed away in 2020. And, um, you know, that was only a year later and I have a lot more, uh, responsibilities and, um, 
and I didn't want uh, I didn't want that to overshadow uh, some of those other responsibilities in my personal life. Yeah, no, so no, that makes. I mean, yeah, if you're taking on too much at that point, you have to decide what's important, and obviously, this takes so much time out of just your personal life. To, the time it takes for the board meetings, plus reviewing the cases, of, you know, weeks yeah. before, and, all and it's not full time. It's not full time. Yeah, this is not a full time job. This is largely a volunteer position, right? Uh, we were it, it, in the city, the city at some point in time kind of retro, retroactively started paying us $200 a meeting, which, you know, when you break it down per hour, we're, it's not a lot. And, um, you know, now that, that was fine. I actually, I actually preferred that we were not paid, right? Like I did not want to be paid by the city. I, I would, would have preferred it, that it'd be volunteer because I think it's, uh, it's more in line with what we're trying to do anyway. Yeah. Um, you know, it, it most uh, boards re- receive stipends, some, some kind of stipend, right? Right. But I think, I think when you're dealing with like, if you're on the historical commission, right you're you're, you're getting $200 a meeting or whatever. And, and, and then that's fine. You know, you're going out looking at buildings or whatever the historical commission does. Uh, but with this, not I ought to I, knock anyone who's on the historical. No, no, no. It's the, the reason I mentioned it. This, <laughs> this is a, an amazing commission. Oh, okay. Like yeah, I think the, the city of Long Beach is an amazing history, right? Like, like my house is an old McDonnell Douglas tract and we got it remodeled. And, uh, you know, when our contractor was remodeling, it, he found the original actual, their blueprints, hand drawn blueprints from 1947 from the old, the guys, I mean, these were guys really? that, that had fought in world war two and they were crazy. amazing craftsmen. Like, like our house was so well built, you know, he's like, Oh my gosh, this house is like so amazingly built, you know, and it was full of like rat termites, like <laughs> the hybrid animals that had somehow combined, and, you know? And so, um, Again, going back to it, I feel like when you're on a commission and you're overseeing something as important as police work, which is what I consider to be the societal safety net, right? Like we, we, you know, a lot of people are like, well, you know, they're not going to stop the burglar who's who's going into your house. I'm like, well, maybe not, but they can absolutely respond to it and arrest him at the tail end. And if you do that enough that is going to mitigate and prevent burglaries in mass. And right? if they, well, the, the problem is you're talking about uh, district attorneys and actually prosecuting, but you have, you catch the guy. Yeah. Well, police can go and catch the guy, but if they don't keep him in jail or they actually prosecute him by the crimes and we're not going to, that's where the issues are going to come up. Well, and then you go on next door, right? You go yeah. on next door and like, you know, I see like, Oh, the, the police won't even respond to X, Y, and Z. And, and, you know, I, I don't write back or anything, but I'm like, well, part, part of the reason that they're unable to respond to certain things is number one, we need more officers. Okay. Number two, the district attorney of Los Angeles has basically said, you're not able to do your job. And if you do your job, I'm going to hold you accountable and I'm going to punish you and possibly fire you. Well, it's two different things. So the word accountable, cause this came up recently in a training I took. So being held accountable is actually not, and we use the word as like, it's a negative. Okay. I'm right. Okay. No, no, no. Right. right. No, and I just want to clarify, like we should, people should be held accountable for, for sure. the action in both ways. Good, good and bad. Like if you oh, do something well, we should be held accountable for it. Correct. But you're definitely right. Like as far as like, Hey, we're going to, we're going to come after you. If you make maybe minor mistakes that, Oh, Hey, you, you're not, you didn't do everything perfectly. Now we're going to come after you because right. you didn't do procedurally do everything perfectly. Right. Yeah, I mean, those are the issues that I see. I, I mean, you know, when you talk about the the district attorney of Los Angeles, he's got a recall effort. You know, I don't know how that's going to go. They they kind of I know that there's one that's already failed. Uh, you know, this this individual, he just seems to not be for the rights of police officers. He seems to be really against the rights 
of individual citizens who want to follow the rules and, and live a, a nice life, right? It, it really boggles my mind. I, it, it is kind of, I've never actually seen anything like it in my entire life. Um, it is completely antithetical to the position. It's completely against the spirit of what a district attorney is supposed to be doing. I, I mean, I've never seen such an atmosphere, and you, and it's not just here in Los Angeles. It's in San Francisco. I lived in San Francisco with my wife for a while. Uh, we used to call it Gotham City without the Batman. <laughs> <laughs> um, and actually, we lived there during the golden years, and we had a great time. It's in, you know, I have, I have a little startup company, and I talk to guys in New York, and they're like, New York's not New York anymore, New York City. Um, you know, it's happening in Seattle, obviously, in Chicago. Um, but Los Angeles is a big city. It's a dynamic city. It's a historical city. It's a city with a lot of different ethnicities. It's a city with a lot of different income inequalities and a lot of different factors. And when you have a police force who's not able to complete their mission and their job and their responsibility without fear of massive reprisals, it just is going to create an atmosphere of fear. It's going to create an atmosphere of mistrust. And it's going to create an atmosphere of just general unfairness across the board. Right. And I, I feel very strongly against it. It's part of the reason why I am very much thinking of leaving the county. I wanted to live here until you know, I was older and raised my son here. And I'm not sure if I want to stay because of these factors and because of what I'm seeing. I don't think you're alone in that thought process. And, um, you know, my heart goes out to the individual officers that, you know, I was talking to my wife actually earlier today about it. You know, you look at your significant other and they don't know if you're going to come home in the evening. Right. And, um, I mean, that, that can happen to anybody. You can get in a car accident or whatever, but that profession in particular is dealing with uh, dangers and, um, you know, issues that a lot of other people don't think. Do they think, oh, well, I, I used to watch cops in the 90s, so I know exactly what they're going through, and no, you don't. Um, and I don't, by the way. I'm not trying to say that I'm some sort of trained officer or an expert in this, and I don't. I just know... I know what I know, and I know what I see, and what I saw was individuals right now who are really up against uh, a very difficult situation, and then on the backside, they've got a political class that doesn't want to support them at all. And now you have, you know, to, to talk about politics a little bit, you've got these guys, I think even the president of the United States said, oh, I didn't mean defund, I meant refund. And it's like, no, you didn't. You, you had this huge movement across the board in almost every major American city in the nation uh, uh, trying to essentially eliminate the police force. You've got uh, congressional leaders who are like, oh, the police are evil and we don't need them anymore. I'm like, well, who's good? Look at New York. You know, you've got, uh, I don't want to bring up too many issues, but you've got AOC, who's always very anti-police and anti-this and anti-that. In her district, it's, it's the, the crime rate is through the roof. People are really unhappy. People are leaving New York. People are leaving Los Angeles. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, it's, it's the, the fact is, is that individuals need to be able to, if you're, if you're going to sign up to be a police officer, you need to be able to do your job and to do it effectively, and to have the system 
essentially not not backing you if you do something wrong or if you're mistreating somebody or if you really overstep the line. Absolutely not. But you need to be able to understand that in some way, shape, or form, they've got your back and they support you. And right now, they've created a situation in California where it's not. And I, you know, I've had people go, oh, you should go run for office and all that. I'm like, no, I don't want to. Uh, you know, it's, it's too much. It's, it's everybody's unhappy about everything all of the time. Yeah. And I have very strong beliefs. I'm, I know it's crazy, but I think that we should have way more officers on the streets. Officers deal with a gambit of issues. They're overloaded, right? We talked about that earlier. Overloaded. They need to be able to have a system that supports uh, a law enforcement um, and supports uh, the, the general populace. And right now, by not prosecuting crimes, you're putting single mothers at risk. You're putting you know, families at risk. You're putting children at risk. You go, you go talk to parents down in, and I was the, the, the head of the board at Naples Bayside Academy when my son went there. And uh, when you talk to parents down in the shore... And, and I don't live there, by the way. But you talk to them. Just in case you're wondering. Yeah, yeah, I don't live down there. Um, when you talk to them, you know, th- this was a community, and I used to go down there a lot too. This is a community where you'd see kids going from, you know, Rogers and Wilson and places like that, hanging out on the street. Now they're not doing that because their parents are terrified because they've had so many negative interactions with the homeless and kind of this just general feeling that there's a criminal element out there. Um, you know, if you live in a city... If you live in a dynamic city, if you live in a place that has income inequality, you're going to have problems. But you need to have, uh, you need to have a supportive force who's able to do their jobs effectively. And that's why I'm so against people like George Gascon. And I don't have anything against him personally. I don't know who he is. I've seen him once. I don't know his family. I... I I know that he probably is attached to a certain Hungarian billionaire that I've heard some rumors about, but I don't want to ruminate about that either. Um, But, you know, it just seems to me that he wants to completely, we talk about the societal safety net, he wants to completely untether that net and just kind of leave everybody on their own. And and I don't get it. There's no part of me that understands the underlying philosophy of this. I, I mean... To make a bad pun, he's kind of like the Vladimir Putin of D8s, right? <laughs> like, what the F are you doing? Yeah. Like, why are you doing this? I see, other than maybe somebody's, I don't know, I don't want to make any judgments here, but he is, you know, I think you have to start at the top. With any kind of position, you have to start at the top. If your DA is actively, instead of trying to prosecute criminals for breaking laws and doing really serious things. We're not talking about people who are stealing a little bit of food to feed their family or diapers or whatever. We're talking about the smash and grab stuff. We're talking about major robberies and thefts on a daily basis. We're talking about uh, violent crime, violent crime. And what I'm seeing is, is a complete degeneracy across the board where I just see, I see stuff go down all the time across the city. Right, just on a daily basis, you just see stuff go down. You see drug deals on corners and all sorts of just stuff. So where where we're at right now, like where the society is going, and obviously not you're not in that position now to kind of be in that 
I don't know, in that, in that commission position, but you're Correct. still you're still a, a citizen of Long Beach, right? So you still care about the city, you still care about the people in the city. I like the city, right? So I chose to live here because I think it's an it's an awesome city, and it's got a lot of dynamics. And again, I've never ever been under the impression that it's the safest city in America, right? This isn't Irvine. No. Uh, <laughs> Is that the safest city in America? <laughs> it used to be, I think. That's I don't know. Funny. So, uh, what would you? What suggestions could you bring to a either people who are in policing now? Right, who are doing mm-hmm. the job now, knowing from the other side of it. So seeing these complaints come in, right, coming that from that perspective of seeing the type of complaints that you see and how they're analyzed and how they're debated from the citizen side of it. Uh, what can police officers do now for themselves while they're working to protect themselves? And is there anything that departments can do better to support their police officers? That's a good question. Uh, let's address your first one. Um, I think in the field, and it, it's probably the rule of thumb for any any kind of service career, uh, calm, cool, and collected always wins the day, right? Is that whenever somebody loses their temper and loses their ability to manage a situation effectively, that's when uh, judgments have been made and whatnot. And again, and this feeds into number two, uh, about the departments, you know, I need, I, I would love to see more hiring. I would love to see more hiring. I would love to see more officers on the streets because, uh, you know, there's, there's very few officers that support, you know, we talk about Long Beach as the cross, like, you know, you've got North, South, West, and East divisions. If there's very few officers that support these very big, Long Beach is a big city, these, these very large areas. And if we had, you know, more officers, 25% more officers, you would see officers be able to be calm, cool, and collected because they wouldn't be dealing with this incredibly uh, enormous amount of responsibility with very few resources, right? right? So if you're a soldier and you're asked to go fight a war and they, they they don't give you resources, the correct resources or the correct amount of soldiers to go fight that war... How do you think it's going to go? Right. It's not going to go well. Well, and you know, I can only speak to this city. Okay. So as far as the way staffing works, we are, we are most days working at what you call base staffing. Mm-hmm. So let's say base staffing is, let's hypothetically say it's 10 officers, which is about average for each division, about 10 officers. Um, we're mostly operating at space staffing because people have vacations or days off or whatever it is. And, that means that most of it, most beats, because each division is broken up into a beat. Each sure. beat has most of the time one officer, maybe two officers working that beat. So when someone says, "Hey, how, I need you to, I need more policing in this beat," well, you have you have one officer that's working that entire beat, and that that can be anywhere from you know, it's like a ten by like let's say uh, it's a two to five square mile area, depending on what it is, right and those officers have responsibilities to all the calls in their beat and not only the calls in their beat, but all the calls in the division at a day, any daily basis to help each other out. So when you're talking about more officers, more officers, we would, we right now we're barely making base staffing because of yeah. having to push people to work overtime and all this other kind of stuff. So, yeah, I mean, I'm completely on board on the idea of, of hiring more officers. And the question is now, where do you get them? That's a problem. And that's a problem. That's why I want to talk about, you know, you know we go back to the DA and these, these very negative uh, anti-police policies is how are you going to find individuals wanting to do the job? 
Um, it is a job. I think police officers get paid fairly. I don't think anybody's getting rich off um, police work. Uh, you know, just in in doing leaving teaching and doing what I've done, investments and some of the startup stuff. It is way easier to make money than to be a police officer, or be a firefighter, or be a teacher. Uh, you're you're dealing with people who came into the profession because they wanted to. Uh, you know, I really believe this because they wanted to protect and serve their community. They wanted to uphold these very high standards and these values. You know, these are special individuals that are going out and putting their, their asses on the line every single day. Um, and so, again, it gets back to the political class needs to not just, oh, here's a bunch of money. You're refunded. No, no, no. It doesn't work that way. You have to build up your force. You have to give them encouragement and the positivity, and so they can they can move that forward, right? Because you're talking about you talked about this chain, kind of the chain of from from. There's a show called How I Met Your Mother. There was this episode called The Chain of Screaming, where like one person screams yes. at one person, and then they go I home remember, and they scream episode, at another yeah. person, right? And essentially, that's what we're dealing with in policing is the chain of screaming. You got the DA screaming at the police chief or whoever that they're not doing a good enough job and they go and scream at other people. And, and I'm not saying an actual physical scream. I'm just saying that they're carrying that message forward. And so when you're dealing with a demoralized force, how in the hell are you going to go out and recruit uh, these younger people that are idealistic and want to protect and serve their community? They're going to be like, no, I'm going to go to my startup, right? Right. And that's not what we need right now. We need high-quality officers. We need high-quality teachers. We need high-quality people willing to go into politics because they're not high-quality right now. Um, and so, you know, that's that would be my recommendation. The other thing, and I've really thought about it too, is that because of what police officers deal with, you see, truly see the worst of humanity. I really, truly believe that. And I think sometimes you see the best of humanity too. But you, you, you're put in positions where you see truly horrific things. I think uh, amongst uh, uh, any profession, police officers are one of the highest rates of suicide. Right. And, and that's... There's 170 officers committed suicide last year. Uh, where? In, just in across the United States? United States? Yeah. And, and I'm talking about even the federal police and everybody, right? Is that you're, you're expected to do a very dangerous job. And then when society says, well, you stink at this and you do that, then... How are you supposed to, to internalize that as people? And so the department resources would be best fit to find, uh, you know, mental health, you know, for the officers being able to just come off their beat and uh, debrief with somebody. And it doesn't even, you know, probably be best to have a professional. But and, and again, this is just a very broad recommendation. But in some way, shape or form, be able to share that with a professional in a, in a closed and safe environment and how they're feeling that would go a long way. Right, that would go a long way to helping them feel better about themselves and kind of decompressing from what they've seen. And especially when you guys are expected to not just work your your standard shift, you're doing a lot of overtime, you're covering for a lot. Again, this gets back to we need to hire more officers. You know, you, you don't need Black Hawk helicopters. You need more officers on the street. You know, there's a human element involved here that's so important. And we've really lost that in our society. It really, it truly breaks my heart because, you know, we're both parents and we want our children to grow up in a society that's safe and is fair. And that if you follow the rules, you're going to be okay, right? There's no, there's no perfect. There, and bad things happen to good people all the time. And so I'm not saying that. I'm saying that 
I just want everybody to be treated fairly and with respect. And you talk about these officers that have you know gone too far, or really lost their tempers or whatever. Oftentimes, more than not, and I can't speak to the individuals uh, completely, but what I've seen is people that are just fried, right? Their executive right. functioning is just gone. Like, they're just exhausted. You know what's funny? On that same note, I have talked about this. So let's say in my position, I'm a sergeant, and I I work day shift. So I'm lucky enough to work day shift, but the guys work, work graveyard every day. That a, a sergeant who works graveyard handling the same incident at 3 in the morning is supposed to make the exact sound judgment, the same judgment that I'm going to make at, at 11 a.m., right? right, when I'm fully rested. Right. And they're going to be judged based on, the e- we're equally judged. Like, I don't get, like, preference. I don't get, like, I'm not, like, I don't get a pass or, or because I've, I've slept because, more. Yeah, yeah, you have the eight yeah, hours. Or they, or they start, let's say, the opposite. Sure. They don't get a pass because they, they don't have any sleep. You know, right. they're expected to be fully functioning and ready to go at a moment's notice, even though they might be exhausted because they haven't slept, can't sleep during the day or whatever. Now they're working at night. It just... Because that's their shift. And we got to talk about just being exhausted. That's just let alone working, you're talking about overtime, but that's just a straight shift in the middle of the night. So, I mean, there's so many factors that go into this. And I don't even know if they even discuss that in those kind of meetings. And you don't have to go into we, it too much. No, but like, they do not. But they that would not. be, think about that. You're judging a, an incident. It's like, okay, it's four in the morning versus the guy, it's like, you know, four in the afternoon. Does it matter? Does it matter? I don't know. Maybe it does. To 80%, 80% of the cases we got were at night. I mean, I'm not saying that's... Well, I know, I know. The the criminals love the nighttime too, right? Right. Like, it's their favorite time. But um, it's, it's, again, it speaks to, you know, we're saying saying exactly the same thing, is you have an overworked, demoralized force that needs to be brought back up. Yeah, they need to recover some recovery issues. Some recovery systems need to be put in place for the officers involved. And I'll give you an example. I talked to the principal at the school that I was, uh, before this was before the pandemic, and it was a different principal that, that's that's uh, there now. And I talked to that principal and I said, you know, I'm a part of this commission. I would love to bring some officers over and to talk to the kids and to tell them what they do. And I think that's really, I think the community outreach part of being a police officer is so important. And kids love fire trucks. They love police cars, right? Um, and they said no. I said, we don't want it. And it's, it's too much of a, you know, it's too much of a political liability. I'm like, you don't want like extremely, I mean, they're not going to send over people that are flamed out. They're going to send over, you <laughs> the know, community outreach people. Yeah. yeah. The community outreach. Well, people. Either way, it doesn't matter. You send an officer that day to, Hey, it's your job to go over to the school. They, most of these guys it. have kids. Absolutely. I mean, they're going to go. Yeah. It. It's a, it's a huge thing. And the kids see them as, as uh, role models. And, you know, you talk about, you, you t- I'm sure if you talked to, to did a poll amongst all the people that worked in Long Beach, like how many of them saw somebody go to one of their schools or one of their community centers or whatever and talk to them about what they do? And they're like, oh, my gosh, that's that's what I want to do. Right? right. And now the schools are like, no, 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 we don't want that. And so, again, this speaks to this this politicized environment against officers. And again, that goes back to why I didn't want to be part of the commission. I didn't want to be thrown into this group where they thought, oh, well, this this guy uh, is clearly on the side of the DA, and I've been pretty clear that I'm not here, right? And I just don't agree with that, and I just think that there needs to be a lot more understanding and, and uh, to build this bridge in between what officers really do and what go through uh, with the community so they understand. Well, um, I think it's... I wish you were still on the board, just because hearing your side of it right now, like I wish we... And I hope, and I really hope, like what you said, it's completely still true to this day. Because obviously you don't know, I don't know if you know the same board members, but 
I hope the commission is made up of people who are still making really sound judgmental decisions that are going to be fair and equal, looking at all the facts and not just politically siding on one side of it because they may be influenced for some reason or the other. Right. But yeah. And, and, you know, again, we had a, a very diverse board. It wasn't all people that looked like me. It was the people who came from all different walks of life, right? And I think that's, if you're going to do a citizen commission, I think that's the way to do it. Um, and, uh, you know, we, we would deal with difficult, very difficult cases in terms of some of the most difficult cases we, we dealt with were racial profiling, right? Like, how do you determine racial profiling and all of that? And, um, you know, different commissioners bringing in their understanding and in talking to uh, some of the other individuals, um, you know, those are, first of all, those are incredibly difficult to prove, incredibly difficult to prove. Um, But, you know, those were those were tough conversations. And I felt that the commission handled themselves really well, actually, especially because of the really hyper politicized environment in 2019 and 2020. Uh, the commission, you know, anybody who's listening or if it gets back to them in some way, shape or form, this is this is not uh, not an indictment on them at all. I felt that everybody really, ex- with the exception of the one that I talked about earlier, everybody did a, a, a good job um, in, in dealing with these difficult matters and in looking at what the officers said and looking at the complainants and all of that. So, you know, it was it was uh, it was I felt that the commission was always in a difficult position because you know, the officers were like, well, who are these people? And then the complainants were like, oh, you suck because, you know, you can't solve our problems immediately because if somebody would make a complaint and then, you know, they, they would get it back uh, nine months to a year later. But anybody who's ever dealt with the legal system or courts knows that it is a slow process, right? And um, I never saw really any games being played or anything like that from the uh, police department either. Um, they were a little bit of slow. They sometimes were kind of slow to get it back, but I, I understand that there were also gets back to staffing. Like they were short staffed as well and they needed yeah. more people. Um, and so, you know, again, I, I just wanted to reiterate uh, the professionalism, the professionalism that I saw of that commission as well. So well, I appreciate it. I appreciate you coming on to talk about that today. Is there anything that you want to, uh, what's like, what next steps? Like what are you doing now that you want to talk about? Uh, not, really. <laughs> no, no, no. not yet. No. Um, what am I doing now? I'm, I'm hoping world war three doesn't start. Yeah, I think <laughs> um, most of us are feeling that way. Pretty, pretty dark. We live in some pretty, uh, dark times right now. No, I'm, I'm just, um, trying to be there for my family and, and support them. I'm, I'm, uh, you know, I, I run the family business right now and I, I just want to make sure that everybody's okay. We've all, we've all been through so much and, and you know, everybody has during this period of time. And, uh, I, I just want to be present for my family and, and do the very best job I can. And when I, you know, there might be a time where I, I go seek, uh, some higher office or something at some point in time. I, I applied to the Ivy league and when I was on the commission and, and I did so with the intention of possibly running for a position, you know, later oh, interesting. on. All right. And kind of, kind of looked at the Senate a little bit. Um, <laughs> there's a, there's a certain, uh, there's a certain Senator who's 722 years old <laughs> that needs to retire. But you know, that's, that's such a political thing. I, I don't really want to be part of that. It's that's that it gets, get, gets back to kind of my family thing and this weird thing where I kind of feel like I, I need to do a higher level of service to, to serve my country. I really believe in this country. I, uh, I care about it. I want uh, my son to grow up in a country that he's proud to be a part of. That's a lawful country. The United States of America is not a perfect country, right? We're, 
imperfect people, and it was started by imperfect people who were very bright, uh, but they were imperfect for a lot of reasons, which I don't want to get into. Um, but I, I believe at the core of who we are as Americans is that we are law-abiding people. We believe in a social contract. We believe in this identity, and it doesn't matter where you come from, that you know that that there's a fairness doctrine at play, right? Like if if you treat other people fairly, you know you should be treated fairly. Uh, you know, there, there's basic principles right now that are being violated. Like don't lie, cheat, and steal is kind of off the board. Yeah. It kind of seems to be allowed. Um, and so, you know, I think the final point for me would just be to to thank your listeners, if they're police officers, to thank them for their service. Uh, I know myself, my family, and many, many, many members of my community very much appreciate what you do. Uh, they appreciate... Uh, the, the sacrifice that you put in and know that this, this noise from this larger political class doesn't reflect the values and how we feel about the police officers in general. And I just wanted to thank everybody for their service and, uh, you know, thank you for putting yourself on the line day in and day out. You're very brave people. And I, I very much uh, uh, am in awe sometimes of, of how, uh, how well you can handle extraordinarily, probably in some of the most difficult situations human beings can deal with. Um, and, and we've seen a lot of that on the videos. And I know that even the videos I saw, we don't deal with capital stuff, right? Like, and I know you guys, I, I always said, it's kind of like the PG-13-ish, and then there's the R-rated stuff we don't get to see uh, to make a bad joke. But uh, <laughs> But anyway, you know, I just wanted to extend my... Uh, my sincere appreciation to uh, to the officers who are protecting and serving our community. Well, I, like I said, I appreciate you, you reaching out to me and coming on and talking about this. I know like not everybody would do this and it gives us a lot of insight of what you guys do and what you used to do and what they still do today. So I think that's important for the people who are listening. So, um, Thanks to Justin for coming on. Uh, this was a Let's Grab a Cup podcast. You can find me at AP underscore Sturgeon on Instagram or at Let's Grab a Cup on Instagram. Also, my website, SturgeonWellness.com or Let's Grab a Cup.com. And uh, yeah, reach out, email me, and uh, let's uh, talk about the show. Let me get this little outro music and we'll call it a day.